Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy 4th of July to all. Last week was a short week, and in the world of immigration, a bit of a quiet one. After all, even circuit judges are not immune from the love of barbecue. We've got only three cases to discuss this week, a very welcome amount after last week's nine. The cases involve asylum, refugee status, derivative citizenship, and particular social groups. Now, on to the first case. Although I try to limit the scope of this podcast to appellate and Supreme Court immigration decisions, due to the lack of time and quantity of material, this past week was a short and slow one for the circuits, and Judge Timothy Kelly in the D.C. District Court issued a big decision for asylum seekers. So here is Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition et al. v. Trump et al., published by the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia on June 30, 2020. This case is about the new interim rule that the Trump administration put in place to prevent certain non-citizens from qualifying for asylum, depending on how they reached the United States and what they did before coming here. In short, Judge Kelly vacated the Trump administration's interim rule, which disqualified non-citizens who arrive at the southern border, aka through Mexico, from receiving asylum unless the non-citizen previously and unsuccessfully sought similar protection in all the countries they passed through on the way to the United States. Or to paraphrase some commentators, preventing asylum as we know it. In so holding, Judge Kelly did not reach the constitutional or statutory arguments in the case, and instead based his ruling solely on the podcast's old friend, the Administrative Procedures Act. Shameless plug! For a thorough review of the history of the APA, give last week's special interview with Ira Kurzban a listen. Now just to start off, I find it important to mention that Judge Kelly is a Trump appointee. As a former judicial law clerk myself, I believe strongly that it shouldn't matter who appointed a federal judge. But America seems to care right now. I can't help but feel good for the perceived legitimacy of the courts and how decisions like these combat President Trump's thoughtless tweets reducing federal judges to simply Trump judges or Obama judges. So again, Judge Kelly vacated the interim rule because the Trump administration did not comply with the APA. Due to the nature of the interim rule, all parties agreed that its implementation needed to comply with the APA, including the notice and comment process, unless an exception applied. The notice and comment process provides the public and stakeholders with an opportunity to provide input, create a record, and then force the administration to specifically balance those concerns. The Trump administration argued that it did not need to comply with the notice and comment process because the rule is subject to the good cause exception, 
because, according to the Trump administration, any delay would result in a surge of asylum seekers. And alternatively, they argued that it meets the foreign affairs function exception to the APA. Judge Kelly rejected both exceptions. He rejected the first, the good cause exception, stating, and this is incredible, quote, the evidence that defendants rely on begins and for the most part ends with a single newspaper article in the Washington Post from October 2018, end quote, which addressed family separation. Judge Kelly explained that, quote, the article does little, if anything, to support defendants' prediction that undertaking notice and comment rulemaking would have led to a dramatic, immediate surge of asylum applicants at the border that would have had the impact they suggest, end quote. So put another way, notwithstanding the vast resources at the disposal of the U.S. government, the best DHS and DOJ could muster to support ignoring the APA was a Washington Post article that wasn't directly on point. As to the foreign affairs function exception, Judge Kelly noted that the D.C. Circuit has only ever applied it to rules implementing an international agreement between the U.S. and a sovereign state. But the instant rule, Judge Kelly held, involves, quote, changes to our asylum criteria that do not clearly and directly involve activities or actions characteristic of the conduct of international relations, end quote. Any, quote, indirect effects do not clear the high bar necessary to dispense with notice and comment rulemaking under the foreign affairs function exception, end quote. Remember, and as the court takes pain to remind readers throughout the decision, Judge Kelly is simply deciding whether the otherwise required and relatively brief notice and comment process can be excused, not whether the interim rule is proper. And that's the holding. The interim rule, sometimes referred to as the third country transit bar, is no more. Ah, the power of Article Three judges. Here are some comments and observations. First, at footnote two, Judge Kelly distills a few case quotes and provides an excellent quote for asylum practitioners to use in credible fear review proceedings before an immigration judge. Particularly necessary following the Supreme Court's decision in the Rasigam last week. That quote is, quote, the Supreme Court has explained that an individual can qualify for asylum if she demonstrates a 10% likelihood that she will be persecuted on the basis of race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion. Thus, at the initial review stage, an asylum applicant need only show a significant possibility of a 1 in 10 chance of persecution, i.e. a fraction of 10%. End quote. I'll take that standard any day. Next, and getting to the bigger picture, it appears that the Trump administration is in the process of promulgating a final rule on this very same issue addressed in this decision, and has indeed engaged in notice and comment rulemaking with it. I'm not steeped enough in the issue, but if true, it may make the impact of this important decision short-lived. In this regard, and as this and many other successful challenges to the Trump administration's immigration actions indicate, the Trump administration likely has the legal authority to do many of the things it wants to do, because the 1996 Immigration Act, IRA-IRA, passed by a Republican Congress and signed by President Clinton, gives the executive an incredible array of draconian tools to use against immigrants. The only thing barring the Trump administration from achieving many of its immigration goals is the haphazard and ultimately illegal manner in which the administration has tried to implement their policies. 
If we want structural change, IRA-IRA is the issue, and that will take, quite literally, an act of Congress. I encourage listeners to check out the Political Action Committee Immigrants List if they too believe IRA-IRA needs a serious overhaul. And that is Capital Area Immigrants' Rights Coalition et al. v. Trump et al. Next is a case out of the Fifth Circuit on July 1st, 2020, Nastasi v. Barr. This case is about derivative citizenship and whether entering the United States as a refugee equates to lawful admission for permanent residence. Mr. Nastasi was admitted to the U.S. as a refugee from Romania in 1986, at the age of one. His parents divorced eight years later, and he went to live with his mother. In 1999, when he was 14, his mother naturalized, becoming a U.S. citizen. In 2006, when Mr. Nastasi was 21, he applied to adjust to lawful permanent resident status, but by that time, he had developed a criminal record, and his application was denied. He was then placed in removal proceedings, where he first claimed that actually he was a U.S. citizen through his mother's naturalization. And second, if he wasn't, he requested that the court adjust him to LPR status under the Special Adjustment Provision for Refugees, INA Section 209A, and grant him a special waiver of his inadmissibility under Section 209C, which is essentially a discretionary waiver and does not require a showing of hardship. The IJ, and then the BIA, held that Mr. Nastasi had not derived citizenship, and that on balance, he didn't warrant a discretionary waiver of inadmissibility. The first of the two issues before the Fifth Circuit was a narrow legal one. Does admission into the U.S. in refugee status, as Mr. Nastasi did in 1986, constitute, quote, lawful admission for permanent residence, end quote? It needs to because in order to derive citizenship from his mother under INA Section 320A, Mr. Nastasi had to, at the time of his mother's naturalization, be a child, quote, residing in the U.S. in the legal and physical custody of his citizen parent pursuant to a lawful admission for permanent residence, end quote. The Fifth Circuit held that per the plain terms of the statute, a child must be residing in the U.S. as an LPR at the time of his parent's naturalization, and that refugee status is not equivalent, because refugee status is conditional. Mr. Nastasi countered that as a refugee, just like as an LPR, he is in fact permitted to reside in the U.S. indefinitely, a.k.a. permanently, unless and until the U.S. government puts him in removal proceedings and successfully shows that he is removable. The Fifth Circuit didn't buy it, noting that the phrase lawful permanent residence has a specific legal definition under immigration law, and it's separate and distinct from refugee status. Indeed, to change from refugee to LPR status, a refugee must file an application, as Mr. Nastasi did, and satisfy the statutory criteria. So the fifth held that Mr. Nastasi did not derive citizenship through his U.S. citizen mother. The second issue before the court was whether the IJ and BIA erred in denying him a waiver of inadmissibility. The waiver is discretionary and is granted, quote, for humanitarian purposes to assure family unity or when it is otherwise in the public interest, end quote. The Fifth Circuit held, as many circuits would have held, that it lacked jurisdiction to review the agency's purely discretionary waiver determination, including whether the agency properly weighed humanitarian factors. So, 
Mr. Nastasi will be removed to Romania, a country he does not know. Two observations. First, Mr. Nastasi was eligible to adjust to LPR status for several years. It's not quite clear from the decision why an adjustment application wasn't filed for him earlier. But as this case mentions, and tragically, it appears that his mother didn't know that she had to apply for him as well when she naturalized. Circumstances like this really highlight the importance of non-citizens who are eligible to adjust to LPR status or to naturalize to do so at the earliest convenience, not least because if they become citizens before November, they can vote. Lastly, turning to the waiver arguments, the Fifth Circuit noted that courts often lack jurisdiction to review discretionary decisions of the agency. But here, Mr. Nastasi got around the jurisdiction problem by arguing that the agency acted in an ultra-virus manner, or beyond the agency's legal authority, because it applied a heightened standard to the waiver issue, a standard applicable only to violent criminals. A very smart argument by Mr. Nastasi, although it failed substantively because the Fifth Circuit found that the BIA did not apply a heightened standard in this case. And that is Nastasi v. Barr. Rounding out the short week, we've got Diaz-Torres v. Barr, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 29th. This case concerns particular social groups under asylum law, but more importantly, what a non-citizen must do to prove that a group is socially distinct. Mr. Diaz-Torres is from Sinaloa, Mexico, and is an agricultural engineer who used to work throughout Mexico for the Mexican government. During his time in Sinaloa, he was asked by members of the Sinaloa cartel one of Mexico's most dangerous international crime organizations, to look into why their marijuana fields were underperforming. He did it once or twice, but eventually he refused. They threatened to kill him, and he fled to the United States. He returned to Mexico to be with his aging mother, but was threatened again by the Sinaloa members. And so he fled to the U.S. for good. He applied for asylum and related relief asserting that he feared persecution on account of his membership in the particular social group, professionals who refused to cooperate with drug cartels, and agronomists who refused to cooperate with drug cartels. He relied largely on his own testimony, which included the fact that he knew agricultural professionals in Mexico who had been murdered by cartels. He also testified that there is a particular term in Spanish used in Sinaloa for someone who has rejected a cartel's recruitment efforts, esta comontado. The IJ and BIA denied his claims. The Ninth Circuit did too, holding that he had failed to establish, as required under asylum law, that his proposed particular social groups were socially distinct. The social distinction element requires a showing that a given society perceives the group as sufficiently separate or apart from others in the community. The society in question can be the whole country, a region, or a subset, depending on the facts of the case, but under Ninth Circuit precedent, it cannot be completely from the view of the persecutors. In this case, the Ninth Circuit held that Mr. Diaz-Torres didn't meet his burden to show his groups were viewed differently than other people in Mexico, or that Mexican society actually views his groups as groups. This decision is kind of a typical failed-to-meet-his-burden holding. 
except the Ninth Circuit also discounted Mr. Diaz-Torres' credible testimony of how his group is viewed, because, quote, After all, the societal distinction requirement is concerned with how others view Mr. Diaz-Torres, not how he believes others view him, end quote. Pretty rough. And for those reasons, his claims were denied. Two observations. First, while it's a bad case for asylum seekers, it does make clear, again, that the social distinction analysis can be limited to solely a regional focus. I wonder if Mr. Diaz-Torres could have succeeded on his claim if he had attempted to show that his group was viewed as socially distinct in Sinaloa, a seemingly more manageable task. Seems like an argument worth making, and the Ninth Circuit and other circuits are begging us to make it. And second, this case and others are really drumming home that the particular social group analysis rises and falls on objective country condition evidence that paints a picture of the society for the court. And though the holding in this case isn't great, the Ninth Circuit does give some examples of what might meet the social distinction test, citing to its 2013 case Enriquez Rivas, which relied heavily on the fact that the Salvadoran government had passed a law to protect people who had testified against gangs showing that the Salvadoran society believed them separate and needing additional protection. Whether it's laws, news articles, or expert reports, the analysis requires a showing that the particular social group asserted is separate and distinct in its own right, and the views of the persecutor are only relevant to the extent that it indicates what society views as a whole. This seems to be a bit of a high bar for asylum seekers, many of who are by definition poor and fleeing their country without time to compile evidence. But it's a bar that us immigration practitioners must and will meet. And that is Diaz-Torres v. Barr. Before we end today's episode, I'd like to mention three notable podcast things. First, I recently contacted the Florida Bar, the current state in which I practice, about the possibility for listeners to earn CLE credit for podcast episodes they've listened to and completed. It turns out that in Florida you can indeed obtain CLE credit for the podcast through attorney self-certification, and 50 minutes of the podcast equates to one credit hour. All you have to do is fill out a CLE self-certification application and submit it along with an outline of the show and my bio. I'm happy to assist with this process and provide a certificate of completion for 10 episodes, equating to 5 credit hours, for 20 bucks. That's 2 bucks an episode. Please email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to and I'll send you an official Immigration Review Certificate of Completion. We're also going to try to learn the process for all other jurisdictions, and we're hoping that other states accept the podcast format and attorney self-certification as well. If any of the listeners know off the bat what the requirements are in a certain state, please email me. Second, we've gotten some great feedback, and it means a lot to me. Here's one from Cherries7688 who, among other things, says that the show is, quote, informative, concise, and relevant for all immigration practitioners, end quote, and appreciates that we, quote, even get down to those nitty-gritty modified categorical approach analysis and pesky footnotes, end quote. Thank you, Cherries7688. I try. 
please continue to leave reviews. It's always so great to read them, and really helps me improve the show. And third, a long overdue shout-out is owed to my fiancé, Kim Cruz. She's been holed up with me in a 700-square-foot apartment in Miami during quarantine, and has remained by my side through countless hours of researching and editing. She's an avid podcast listener herself, and has a great ear for listenability. She's provided invaluable feedback, including ensuring that I pronounce the sometimes very difficult case names correctly, because as she discerningly states, these names are people, and we cannot forget that. Thank you, Kim. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, or anything at all, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.